0: Wake up. Freedom's on the rise.
1: During the 1930s, when you were working a lot with German patients, you did, I believe, forecast that a a, a second world war was very likely. Well, now, looking at the world today, do you feel that a third world war is likely? Uh, I have no definite indications in that respect. But... There are so many indications that one doesn't know what one sees. Is it trees or is it the wood? It's very difficult to say uh, because the the dreams, of uh, people's dreams, contain apprehensions, you know. But it is very difficult to say uh, whether they point to a war because that idea is uppermost in people's mind. Formerly, you know, it has been much simpler. People didn't think of a war. And therefore, it was rather clear what the dreams meant. Nowadays, no more so. We are so full of apprehensions, fears, that one doesn't know exactly to what it points. One thing is sure, a great change of our psychological attitude is imminent. That is certain. why? Because we need more. We need more psychology. We need more understanding of human nature because the only real danger that exists is man himself. He is the great danger. And we are pitifully unaware of it. We know nothing of man, far too little. His psyche should be studied, because we are the origin of all coming evil.
2: Chapter 1. Freedom. A Psychological Problem? Modern European and American history is centered around the effort to gain freedom from the political, economic, and spiritual shackles that have bound man. The battles for freedom were fought by the oppressed, those who wanted new liberties, against those who had privileges to defend. While a class was fighting for its own liberation from domination, it believed itself to be fighting for human freedom as such, and thus was able to appeal to an ideal— to the longing for freedom rooted in all who are oppressed. In the long and virtually continuous battle for freedom, however, classes that were fighting against oppression at one stage sided with the enemies of freedom when victory was won and new privileges were to be defended. Despite many reverses, freedom has won battles. Many died in those battles in the conviction that to die in the struggle against oppression was better to live without freedom. Such a death was the utmost assertion of their individuality. History seemed to be proving that it was possible for man to govern himself, to make decisions for himself, and to think and feel as he saw fit. The full expression of man's potentialities seemed to be the goal toward which social development was rapidly approaching. The principles of economic liberalism, political democracy, religious autonomy, and individualism in personal life gave expression to the longing for freedom, and at the same time seemed to bring mankind nearer to its realization. One tie after another was severed. Man had overthrown the domination of nature and made himself her master. He had overthrown the domination of the church And the domination of the absolutist state. The abolition of external domination seemed to be not only a necessary, but also a sufficient condition to attain the cherished goal. Freedom of the individual.
3: And as you talk about anarchy, I'm deeply, deeply into anarchy. But not of the political brand. That's a farce. That's a myth. And the only people who want it are the some of the scuzzbag, ne'er do well, you know, willless, docile bodies we're talking about. That's for them. They are the ones that Blake talked about when he said the fist that crushes the tyrant's head becomes a tyrant in its stead. Okay, occupy. Right. I'm interested in attitudinal anarchy, where you're free in your mind. There ain't too many of them around, men, So don't sell me the other shit. Don't sell me the ex, you know, the exoteric version. I'm not interested. You can scream. You can chew bricks. You can chew the carpet. All these advocates out there go, Anakin, 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 shoot a cop. Have some fun. Burn the world. Nobody's going to fuck with me and my AK-47. What the hell are you talking about? Right? It's attitudinal. And that is an act of the Zen master. And even they haven't got it now. Most of those guys don't know what they're talking about. It's just more pre-slip. The real, The real thing is something so so much vaster than that, right, it's going light, it's like the fool, two different kinds of light, and everybody on this planet is separated by which light they're, you know, they're signing on for, the light of luminescence, or the other kind of light, the feather light, whoa, all the difference in the world right there, we explored that, so anarchy, yes, I'm all for it, but it's the anarchy of a Cervantes, right, it's the anarchy of an Ezra Pound, it's the anarchy of a Wilhelm Reich who's so vocationally attuned or Tesla or Walter Russell, right? Who's so in tune with themselves that they don't need anything from you. They don't need you to hand them a promise of anything, happiness or any other thing. They're not looking to you because they're in totally deeply entrenched, you know, in dialogue with their imperial self, which provides all that is needed, right? So they're not looking to you for anything. They're not prostituting you and they're not prostituting themselves. They're completely beyond that stage. They're in touch with the great ultimate, you know, which is, as you said, the, the 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 flow of freedom. Freedom is just a synonym for the great ultimate, the great Tao, you know, that holds you to no contracts, doesn't present itself either as teacher to you or as student, and doesn't want you to be in any of those distinctions. It's just a commune in which two friends are walking on a path towards the truth, and the truth is with them. It's not even, it's, there isn't even a path to the truth. You're walking in it in this moment. But that requires a certain kind of sensitivity. Don't get me wrong, there's you know, you can't say that just it just comes to you, there's no work. There's work involved because the world is malignant and toxic, and you've been brought up by toxic parents, and you've been brought up by toxic schools and teachers and priests and all the rest of the programming. So there is a moment where you know to find the still point. And snake dance, the doctor, right, has to fight the snake, the dance of the snake. Yeah, you think you're gonna be exonerated from that and get the enlightenment and truth? You, the dancing with a snake is to know the snake to know it through and through what it's all about how it came into existence and what weapons it uses to you know hypnotize the shit out of you so and that takes anarchy of the mind walking without rhythm very very different process like we said crowley's magical will can i hold the exact opposite of every idea that I espouse and cleave to. It doesn't mean I throw out the ideas I cleave to or that I chose or that I favor. No, I have those. I'll keep them forever. But do I know the absolute refutation of it in the same bowl, in the same mind? No, the answer is no. Our education systems are not interested in that. They're interested in you in polarizing you into allegiances to tenderize you for the political game that comes later. They don't want you to be your own advocate, your own devil's advocate. But until you are, there is no chance of enlightenment it's a myth. It's just a word that's been bandied around, you know, courtesy of the left brain. The real, you know, the word is not the thing, right? So the thing, the real thing, I talk about the real thing, what it is and the road to that, you know, and that road always leads back to the self and back to purging, back to shadow work and all the things we, we make central to this you know, message, uh, you know, and it, it doesn't have much to do with other people. If other people sign on and walk with you and, you know, that's all great. That's an extra cherry on the top. That's fantastic. But you never make that your motive and you never make that you know, as Ayn Rand said, you know, I, 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 I'm not interested in what they're doing because I'm giving them complete freedom. Yeah, I can say no masters above, which all anarchists know how to say. Yeah, but what about the slaves below, asshole? Want me to come into your life and show you where they are? You, the, the real mystic has no masters above by all means, but no slaves below either, you see? Now, that kind of anarchy is, you know, you have to read the fine print. They don't mean that. They mean plenty of slaves below. Just no masters above. I've seen through that bullshit look at this communism that's what communism is defined as you see and yet they have the worst masters above but you know the selling the rhetoric the pulley into the store you know is to sell you this idea of no masters above and of course a lot of people want that and they're right that's born out of a virtue but you don't understand you know that it's a lure it's a carrot this time and so sometimes when life has been very very rough impunitive and harsh for several years these people bring out this gleaming you know big cake like some Wizard of Oz. Just festival, you know, a parade, a float down the street. Happiness, happiness. Oh, you remember the prisoner last scene? All you need is love. A scene of unimaginable chaos over which there's this incredible Beatles track. All you need is love. I, the greatest scene in any type of media ever fucking made. The man nailed it. And we'll go for it. Bury yourself up to your neck in it. And these, these ants will just eat you alive. It's a white magic ritual. Nobody tells you to do anything. Nobody tells you to sell your soul. You, out of fear, out of misgiving, out of a complete wrong indoctrination, you hand it up every time and and, and enter the wicker man of your own free will uh, and watch yourself burn. This is self-immolation, totally and utterly. I will not make any
0: deals with you. I've resigned. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my
1: own.
4: All the parties are the same. Again, going back to, to, to Carl Quigley, he said the same thing back in the 1960s when he published his, his book. He said that the parties eventually are all the same, working, working for the same agendas and, and promising the same nonsense to the general public but serving uh, much higher authorities. He was a technocrat. He believed in technocracy and ruled by experts and intelligentsia. He only believed in that, so he was quite honest about it in his books. So, yeah, even, even what you're following eventually gets gradually subverted until you, you don't realize you've been destroyed or neutralized. And in, in comes all the different uh, um, People who are celebrated at the, at the top is that, that the leaders, the leaders of the alternate uh, media, and uh, and then they split up. Any unified action against anything, that's counterintelligence. Until you can't all collectively <laughs> advocate against anything to save your lives down the road, that's what happens. That's that's very successful counterintelligence. And then you're back to voting, and you'll be voting when you're in chains with your manacles, and so you still be voting. And they'll keep telling you, but so-and-so make it better, don't worry. There's, no, there's nobody to vote for, really. They're a completely compromised system. The whole system is, is thoroughly crooked in this day and age. Unfortunately, and it's up to the public to start demanding from governments uh, uh, the fact that they don't just get rights back. They can't take rights from you, remember that. So you have to just start using your rights and um, asserting. Natural power once again. That's the only way you can do it. Or you're really doomed And it really is you you acquiesce and you go backwards one step you do the second step and before you know it you're going back you're walking backwards and uh, They never give up. That's the technique that's been used. The the behaviorists have gone on. I've prattled on about this for years. They're employed to do this kind of stuff and 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 here we are. They're all pushing it forward now, so you can help me, as I say, take along. Go into and I'll look at my site there, and uh, you can find out how to help me take along too and keep going. Now, for the last leg here, let's just touch on really the the whole idea of uh, the, the World Economic Forum. Everything out there is all connected with the same players. This, the member Quigley again said that the new system will be run by CEOs of international corporations. He also included the medical industry, and, and you're, you're seeing it openly today. And there'll be the new feudal overlords. The new system will be a feudal system, but feudal overlords of CEOs, of, CEOs of corporations, and that's where we are now, isn't it? And you got it where you liked it or not. You weren't asked about it, you never are. You never will be asked about anything that you really, really need to know or to have an input in. So the World Economic Forum, I always say backwards, it's the FEW, it's for the few. And they have the Center for Fourth Industrial Revolution, very important because they, they, they prattle on about the previous times, you know, of types times of, times of industry up to the present, and that the Fourth Industrial Revolution is the, the, the new type, totally uh, monitored societies, all part of their Fourth Industrial Revolution, shaping the future of technology, governance, they call it, artificial intelligence and machine learning. And they're going about how it all works together to for, for everything you pretty well need. This all goes through computers and um, black box algorithms and so on and so on. But it says, shaping the future of technology, governance, Internet of Things, robotics and smart cities. It's all coming together now, isn't it? Under a crisis. Eh? They want you into the smart cities where you get totally monitored. Uh, and at the same time, if, if you want to catch something or some disease, as said gave this talk years ago, you don't want to be in the cities because if they release something, inadvertently or, or whatever, <laughs> accidentally, um, or intentionally, then it's going to sweep right through a city. You're all packed together. You know, Look at New York. You know? So uh, Internet of Things, Robotics and Smart Cities, but they don't want you driving around. They don't want you completely locked down your area. So there are more are like more connected devices in the world today than there are humans. Blah 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 blah. Internet of Things, yada yeah, yada yeah, yada. Yeah. And then they go into the shaping the future of technology governance, blockchain and distributed ledger technology. How wonderful it'll all be. And this is the this is the World Economic Forum. Remember the one the same. The same thing. Everybody we've mentioned tonight is a member of it. Huh? Shaping the future of technology governance, data policy. And data is the auction that fuels the fire of the fourth industrial revolution. More data has been generated than ever before, with the global volume of data predicted to double between 2018 and 2022, and then double again between 2022 and 2025. Well, it will when we're all manacled and got the apps and stuff, and they've got chips on you and chips implanted into you, and you get got your tattoos as well. And um, autonomous urban mobility and so on. Because obviously they're going to start. To, you, you, you understand what, how many car companies are closing down at the present time and, and have done for the last few weeks. How much of the Agenda 21 is. is? is the Agenda is for the whole 21st century. That's what it means, Agenda 21. Right? For the whole 21st century. Everything is all. Sectioned into, into 20 30 year periods or even 15 year periods, different parts of it is to be completed. But the whole, all of them must be completed by, uh, by the end of the century, and including the fact that no privately owned cars at all. Well, it's all, they're all on board with it too at, at the World Economic Forum. Do you vote for, the, for this that? No, you don't. No. Do they ask for you? No, you don't. But they dictates you and they dictate to governments and so on and so on. It's just amazing, isn't it?
5: Welcome to Freedoms Rising, here on this July 4th Independence Day here in the United States of America 2022. You are listening to Freedoms Rising, Episode 20, Part 4 of Falling into the Movement Traps, and you are participating in The Rise of Freedom. Freedom in the minds of men. Instead of fire in the minds, you know, blazing what white hotness, burning the back of the eyeballs so the person is insane, we are understanding the true origins, causes, necessities for the conditions of freedom here in the minds of humans. And you are freeing more minds today with freedoms rising. You are participating in the rise of freedom. Why don't I I'll just keep going on with the jingles now? Uh, what you heard there as an opening clip was Carl Gustav Jung. It's a Jungian thing that we started out with. It's a bloody Jungian. It's so it's so Jungian that it turns out it's not Jungian. It it's not even. It's so bloody true. It ends up not being true. That's how bloody true it is. It's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. Uh, The Jordan Peterson's a little off today. I uh, did some running around chasing my dog who got out yesterday and tore up my voice a little bit yelling at at that dog. It turns out if you lure the dog in with kind of being nice to it, it will come back. But if you just keep yelling angrily at a dog who's running away from you, they just keep running. So... Might sound a little bit hoarse today, but then we had after Carl Gustav Jung talking about the origins of all coming evil, a clip I've used way back even in the first episode of Creature of Control, and uh, really saw that clip actually in Michael Tesserion's film, The Architects of Control, which I just now recalled. That's really kind of linked together because Michael then was in the opening montage sequence there as well. But after Jung, we went into a book known as Escape from Freedom from Eric Fromm, who's sort of a Jungian himself, you know? It's like the Protestant church had all the people that were against the Catholic church. It's like anyone who's critiquing uh, Freud becomes a Jungian, (laughs) Uh, you know, of course... Jung himself, the Jungian thing being much more of a archetypes and symbology and the higher self and the higher mind sort of speaking to a person and informing them through these higher level uh, symbolic archetypes, right? And things like that. That was uh, taking a stray away from the Freudian sort of uh, you know, everything having to do with the parental figures and the Oedipus complex, and you know, sexual desires and urges towards the parents, and uh, sort of explaining people's psychological issues, you know, all coming from this, where the Jungian crowd, and we again opened up with Jung and then went into Eric Froms Escape from Freedom. Now, Escape from Freedom is a book that's also known as the fear of freedom, depending on where you're at in the world. And we'll get into the entire chapter. So that was a little teaser from chapter one. I'm going to play the entire chapter one at the end here because it contextualizes the questions and not because we agree with all of the psychological analysis from Fromm or you know, are putting him up as a pedestal. Although I do think his books are good to read. I think Escape from Freedom is a good one. And other books from Fromm on the the topic, there's plenty. He's got a, a large repertoire of books uh, that to, to go into the subject of the type of questions that we ask in Freedom's Rising. And I'm just... uh. You know, another tool that people should be aware of is the LibGen desktop, where you can search all kinds of books and download them relatively easily, uh, PDFs or EPUBs, and then with a PDF reader or an EPUB reader, have access to a large repertoire of books, a large library of books. Of course, if you could have a physical book, that would be better on, uh, you know, but Nowadays, a lot of things are done and stored digitally as well, and it's good to have references to both if you can, but a lot of the time I know things now are digital, right? And we rely on these digital sources, and that could be problematic. I mean, we we don't want to get lost there. Let's continue on with the breakdown of the opening montage. Again, we'll circle back to more from From. In the presentation today from the slides and also from the outro, we're going to outro his chapter one from that book. Now, next we did Michael Tesserion and talking about freedom and anarchy and understanding both sides of the argument. And, you know, being able to see, again, both sides of an argument is very important as Michael went into there. He went into a lot of things, but... You know the the whole Gatto arguing with yourself before you, you know, complete the chapter and then revising. Uh, John Taylor Gatto mentioned in the ultimate history lesson, produced by Richard Grove, that the you know the style of his writing was arguous arduous, and very cumbersome because of the way that he had to, you know, go back and revise and reread and go over what he had written and then argue with himself, as he put it, to see if he was wrong. And oftentimes he would find holes and then have to go back and, you know, make it tighter, make things not, you know... Basically this concept of being able to argue with yourself and how, you know... Michael referred to the uh, Krollian magical will or something like that where, you know, you're not buying in completely to either side of the argument at times and you need to be able to you know have an open mind as we discussed last episode how a lot of people will say they're open-minded but aren't able to explore the other ideas even it's too terrifying in some cases with some of the things that we talk about here or too much of a burden is from would say with the escape from freedom and being honest with yourself about you know what in life that we're really valuing and putting up on the highest levels versus, you know, supporting, living for, and trying to promote freedom. And if these two things are antithetical, you know, and if we really are in an escape from freedom, if, if the idea of individualism to the point of, you know, discovering and exploring these things in yourself to be able to conquer them. And then, you know, that, that will then put you in a different category than the group and the, crowd and the general norms of society and then that burden can become very large and too hard to handle and so people are we really looking for freedom or are we trying to escape from freedom and so you know we we had a look at it there from from and we'll be getting back into that more again not to say that he's got it nailed or that that theory is correct but it contextualizes the questions that we are exploring and asking here and then of course you know we had uh michael also mentioned you know some of the ideas of anarchism having to do with the communist revolutions really in the uh, european revolution which uh in in that in that time period which will be you know going into when we dive into some of the sections of fire in the minds of men or uh explore you know some of the some of the more meaningful concepts around that period that have to do with anarchy and not just ignoring i mean it has to do with it because people were in an, an anarchist what they what they even called themselves and labeled themselves as as a you know a, a way A revolution against monarchy and against the religions and the central authorities of that time, into you know, this a lot of the theorizing, and then you get Marx and the communist revolutions, which were anarchic in the way that they were labeled, and the way that that word was deployed in the colloquial time was that they were against no gods, no masters, right? So, they were as a refutation. Of the mainstream religions and also in some cases going into anarchism or, or sorry atheism and going into a refutation of god itself and that is a mistake it's 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 going and you know taking like the bibles or the teachings of christianity and trying to interpret those teachings as completely literal and then being like this is foolish and there's translation of this book and being telling us that this is God is, I mean, it's this childish way of viewing that anyways. And so that overthrow of those things and replacing with the central authorities was really co-opted and something that, as Alan Watts was talking about, now we're headed into this World Economic Forum techno-communism fourth industrial revolution, right? Where the, it's a technological revolution of again, these central planners and this sort of neo-feudalism, neo-communism, Klaus Schwabian uh, worldview that is penetrating the cabinets. And uh, we'll, we'll have more on, on that later as I'm going to get into that a little bit. Not, we're not going deep into that. We're going to get back to the struggle for freedom today and uh, the falling into the movement traps sort of opening series uh, episodes that we've been doing here. But Alan Watt, just to get back to him, he did. He has a site, CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com, where he just lays out so much of what he talked about there uh, in depth, uh, with as he talked about Tragedy and Hope, and Carol Quigley there, and uh, Technocracy, and Cybernetics, and he gets a lot into the Fabian Society, and he's always talking about them big boys at the tops, those the big movers and shakers who lord over us. And him and Seamus the dog always put out a lot of good content up there in uh, northern Canada where they're just barely keeping the wood burning to stay warm. And uh, I haven't smoked enough uh, hand-rolled, unfiltered cigarettes to have the whole Alan Watt, like, you know, like throat draw, you know, I guess... I could uh pick up smoking again this year and see if I can get that back. But the uh the po- and he, Alan Watt passed recently uh, within the last couple of years. Uh I don't have the exact date here, but it might have even been within the last year or so. And so we featured him in in my podcasts before in the work that I've put out before and I like to pay tribute to these great thinkers and great content producers like uh Michael and Alan and others that will be playing into the series sometimes with these longer opening montages to sort of, you know, foreshadow what's what's coming up and then just, uh, you know, add context to the overall piece of work that we're putting into freedoms rising and into the falling into the movement trap series here. Thank you for listening to freedoms rising and, uh, sharing this out there to help get the information that we've been putting together out and i will pledge to continue to try to improve and put these episodes out with more excellence and get through periods where we're doing four episodes a week at the moment and it it is a lot and you know it's not like i have this huge storyboard written out um some of this is on the fly with also the you know overall concepts and things being preconceived and we're headed in a certain direction here and we're going to be getting into solutions eventually One day, but before we get into a review and talking about the, that, the solutions thing, just wanted to give an update here that we've also rerouted audio. So hopefully the, the sure SM7B here sounds pretty good, but I've ran three things through my system a little bit differently. I was sort of, I guess the simplest way to put it is I was going sort of direct into Ordor, Ordor, uh, the audio program that I'm using AO. Sorry, A-R-D-O-U-R, an open source audio program that I've been learning since doing Freedoms Rising. So I used this opportunity to learn a new program, and I don't know if it's the best for what I'm doing here with this podcast, and I don't begin to... You don't uh, think that I know how to understand Ordor completely and what its best use is. I mean, it's it's a very complex program that I've just learned the simple ways to use it. And I may may not even be using it 100% correctly, but I'm, I'm learning it. I think it's a good program so far. It seems to have some good functionality for what I am doing. And hopefully that sounds all right. But the, I've added in some additional layers of software. We'll just say that. And... And that actually gives me the ability to do some various things. And the reason why I did that is so I can do on-the-fly breakdowns of playing a clip, let's say, which I'm going to do a sample of here in a second. And I can also... I've I've penetrated the cabinet. And I can do this here.
0: So if we penetrate the cabinets...
5: Okay, I have a little soundboard here on my desk, and I can play the clips... Into the stream, into the pre-recorded stream, and actually, you know, make it more of like a on-the-fly thing when I feel like we need to, uh, you know, add some extra <laughs> uh, comedy, you know, or you know, just what we like to do here is mix it up a little bit and.
0: So if we penetrate the cabinets.
5: And so we penetrate the cabinets, and in order to understand Klaus, we would. We need more psychology. We need more understanding of human nature. So we have a few clips preloaded here. Uh, That was Jung from the opening clip today that you heard there. We need more psychology. And then, of course, Klaus, he was talking to David Gergen in 2017. And that's where that comes from, where he's like, we penetrate the cabinet. So I also have the clip here to play from... My desk. And so if I was to be in flight here talking with you on the podcast, which I do try not to edit heavily, I don't go back and do a lot of post production. And it's because of the amount that we're doing. So we're doing a daily show attempting to get in sync of sort of, you know, more just like me, and my personality coming through, uh, not trying to get in the way of the information we're purveying, but, you know, more raw, let's say, and you know bear with me if that's if that's something that's a problem or, or as we grow yeah. and you know get better or the dog barks like that like just happened right there i don't know if that came through the mic i'm pretty sure it probably did and you know i'm not going to go back and edit that out and try to piece it all together because the idea is to sit down and do the show have some ideas that we're going to riff on and and cover that day and then do the do the close it out get it out another one out the next day and Uh, one way to help with the production of the show rather than sometimes having to have every clip that I want to play in the show pre-loaded ready to go as we did with that opening montage obviously that has to be pre-prepared but if I'm talking about something and I want to have it play into the recording there's a way to route the audio to do that you know without me overly explaining it here I wasn't able to do that before with the way I had things set up, but now let's let's play this clip here and I can sort of commentate over it, right? So we'll give an example of that here.
0: When I mention our names like Mrs. Merkel, um, even uh, Vladimir Putin and so on, they all have been young global leaders of the world oh, economy. Oh, young for. global <laughs> leaders,
2: yes. But
0: um, what we are very proud of now very is proud. the young generation like uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, Um, President of of Argentina, and so on.
5: And so on. So see, I can pause it and then comment on what I just heard, and we can go over how we've talked about the young global leaders on Freedoms Rising before. And here we have Klaus Schwab talking about the quotes that we read back in that episode when we talked about the World Economic Forum and the young global leaders. And uh, let's continue on with the clip.
0: So if we penetrate the cabinets. So yesterday I was at a reception for Prime Minister Trudeau.
5: Oh and I'm sorry that's them.: I mics.
0: We know that half of this cabinet, or even more half of uh, half of this cabinet are
5: for our uh, actually young noble leaders of the world great.: mm-hmm. So he's saying when he was at that the cabinet meeting with young Trudeau. That most of the people there were World Economic Forum agents of the World Economic Forum to implement. But there's no global agenda. There's no uh, neo-technocratic, techno-communist dictatorship being rolled out across the planet. That's not happening. Uh, Don't pay any attention to any of those conspiracy theorists out there. And uh, sorry about the audio issues there with that clip. Those guys had like issues with their mics or something. They were like bumping up against them. But, so that's uh, the update on the audio. So we'll have more, we'll have more. We've we've gone ahead and we've-
0: So if we penetrate the cabinets.
5: We've done the penetration into the new platform of audio. So thanks for bearing with me through that update. And just to review here, we're talking about, you know, is freedom really rising? And of course, what we've been covering here is we've got a problem. I mean, yes, there is freedom rising in the information that's getting out there to people and the ability for us to access and, you know, learn about that information. But in, in, in one way, I mean, there's a lot of other good things happening too that we could point out. But I think it's too little too late in a lot of ways. And I think we've got to step on the gas in the whole freedom department. And so starting, you know, not just your escape from the city and your, you know, land that you're going to get and your freedom cell and your mutual aid little network that you're going to build. But we also have to backfill that. We have to backfill that with the philosophy we need to penetrates the cabinets we need to you know get i'm not saying go run for local government cuz i don't i don't think that using the system in a way of like well if we just vote harder and we and we vote the right guys in there with the corruption and the you know penetration of the cabinets from other entities like the world economic forum and you know the banks the big banks the global cabal essentially above the banks that Uh, is pushing this whole new world order agenda with the globalism, the globalists, right? That is something that has gone to a point where we can't just be, you know, oh, well, we're going to build this parallel economy. We're going to have the parallel society. We, We do need the philosophy known out there in a wider way in more people's minds. And that's why we've always gone back to, you know, freedom being attitudinal and but in a way we need to purvey that to other people in a bigger way and to a wider audience in a way that's interesting and also makes sense to them so they can understand what the idea is what we're trying to get out there so it's not that freedom's not rising in some ways i think in that way where we're able to use the tools that we can use to get our voices out there and I'm not saying like, oh, you know, I'm the hero of this story and look how great I am at doing that. I think I'm, it's a process. This is something that I've found interest in that I can do, that I feel like I can contribute to that effort. And and we're, we're doing, you know, the best we can do with the time that we have and the tools that we have available. And we'll always continue to improve upon that. But... You know, the reason for that, again, going back, we're we're still in the bio war. We're still... I, I didn't just, like, lose interest in producing content on the bio war or, like, oh, well, I was wrong here. I guess the terrain theorists were right, and they we're just, you know, it's all just peace, love, and light is going to get us out. And I, I'm not saying that's what the terrain theorists think are. And I, I'm not going to get into the germ and terrain theory here. But the point is, is we are still in the bio war. We've been attacked and that attack is still continuing Uh, the whole world has been under this attack this psi war the bio psi war and in that war that we're in you know we're being fed a lot of bullshit about what we should be paying attention to versus holding the people accountable that did do the research and did do the gain of function research and now are deploying their mrna technology on the planet and you know modifying our human rna modifying our our genetics you know as an, an attempt to tell us that that's gonna solve covid19 you know and this is this is again part of this is part of a way more nefarious agenda than people are willing to accept that they will look at anything, even the last thirty seconds of what I've been talking about, and you know it's it's a, it's not happening. And how look how crazy Tyler is for making all these giant leaps, and he's not you know using any resources or logic or documents to back that up. And we did we did do that in the BioSciWar, War, and we'll continue to do that. And so yeah, I'm also pr- going to be producing future episodes on the BioSciWar, War, of course. As this uh, war continues, it's not something that just went away. Of course, in the media, you know, we're not supposed to look at any of that stuff. We're not supposed to, uh, you know, be looking into the NIH's funding of -of gain-of-function research and uh, their funding of that perhaps in Wuhan and using, as uh, David Emery calls it, the Wuhan or the Oswald Institute of Virology to, you know, quote-unquote, leak this thing out there like it was some accident and oh you know we just so happen to have the patented solutions all ready to go and uh you know these things are connected and do link together and you can you know go back and listen to what we covered there on the bio war and we'll continue in the future again to go back to that and that's why you know it's it's silly to sit back and say oh yeah freedom's rising and it's everything's doing great guys there's a mass conscious awakening happening consciousness is rising in people they're they're starting to get it they're starting to wake up you know they're starting to look at the truth they're starting to discover for themselves you know that we've been enslaved and lied to and manipulated and that we're rising out of that and that would be foolish to get up here and say that that's what's occurring you know in the world but again we've not taken, from the beginning of this series, a black-pilled, completely black-pilled approach. It may seem that way as we, you know, do a review of if freedom is really rising and we talk about the struggle for freedom like we're going to today. But, you know, we do have to go back and understand some of the sources. We need to understand some of the root cause, causal factors for these conditions and not just always be talking about the bars on the cage and explaining all the apparatus of how the bars on the cage work, which might be important. You know, if we're looking to escape this cage, maybe we we do want to analyze that. Maybe we do want to find the weak points and see how we can get out of that mess. But also why are we in the cage? What's going on with the reason why we've been in this mess? Why, why are we, you know, so far down in the hole of, you know, Sort of this uh, slumber that we've been in, this apathetic, lethargic slumber that it, we we also seem to be in at the same time, and that you know, as things sort of tumble out of control, whether it's economically or with the with the government or you know with the with the world um, geopolitical situation, and it just seems, always seems to be more fear, 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 and We see it sort of falling apart, you know, and of course, if you've been alive long enough, you start to realize that it's always that way and always something, some chicken little world, you know, ending scenario is always right around the corner. Uh, But this, it does seem different uh, post-COVID world. I mean, there seems to be a lot of psychological problems going on. We seem to have a really bad uh, situation of, of depression and people sort of losing it. And so you know, as we opened up with,
1: we need more psychology.
5: We need more understanding. Uh, you know, we we don't have to look at everything completely from a Jungian or Frommian or Freudian perspective. But there, it is a good to understand what these gentlemen and these geniuses put out there and understand their work. Not to say that I'm a, a complete completed student in that aspect, and I'm all all done. I'm all set here, and I know it all. No, I'm on a constant path of learning and growing and exploring. And that's what we're here doing together as well. So that's what makes Freedoms Rising exciting as well, because we're discovering some of Freedoms Rising, you know, as we go. And But it's not a movement, it's not a political or economic solution. You know, it's not uh, wearing the right label or calling yourself the right thing or joining the right movement, you know. And there's a lot of problem with movements and groups and situations that we get caught up in as human beings that end up taking us off our path and our search for meaning, you know, our, our one of the solutions with freedom that we'll be getting into as we talk about, you know, uh, Martin Heidegger or uh, Arnold Gruen, some of these other people that we'll be talking about today, and the solutions proposed being. A, a deep sense of meaning like in Viktor Frankl's way of looking at you know freedom and and not just freedom but happiness you know and feeling fulfilled and having a deep sense of meaning and purpose is a big part of that and it's also a big part of freedom and it's because it's at the other side of the coin in, in the you know action or a positive sense of freedom where we're free to do what free to do what are we trying to get free to do what are we attempting to achieve what what is it that we want freedom to do not just all the things that are wrong with what we can't do or what uh what kind of you know d- dark statist oppression is occurring and the limitations on freedoms but then you know are we are we looking for freedom from freedom by doing those things only and not pursuing the things that we are free to do and our creative side and exploring how we can you know potentially contribute more you know to the overall wellness and betterment of humanity through a creative process that we deploy is that missing you know is that the search for meaning that Frankel was talking about? And we'll I think open up tomorrow with something from him as far as what I had planned in the works here so we'll we'll move on from Frankel and of course, we have the people out there that are you know. Give us the solutions, pounding on the desk. Give us the solutions. And, again, we need to understand the solutions. That's true. And we're pointing to people who did. And we're pointing to a lot of people in the slide deck or by the clips that we're putting into the podcast and in the show notes. And, you know, there were genius thinkers out there who had great works that we can study more and understand more about the solutions. And we'll also be talking about that in Freedoms Rising and pointing to people that we think are implementing real-world solutions, and we're going to be getting back to, you know, the rah-rah-rah Freedoms Rising cheerleader stuff. But we also need to go and understand more about the psychological components. We need to understand more about the conditions that have created things as they are now in our own selves, in ourself, and reflections of other people's analysis of that, by, you know, then seeing if it's something that, as I know, Derek Bros right now is doing his nine-day holistic self-assessment challenge, where he's going back and asking people to review if you've already done the holistic self-assessment, or, you know, and, and uh I was, I did assist Derek in putting that down into a course, he had already had the book written, and some folks from Autonomy and I helped him put that into a course, and now I think That's either free or the book is at least, and you can go and do the nine-day holistic self-assessment. I'll link to that in the notes here. And, you know, we need to be doing that as well, consistently clearing and checking and going back and making sure we're consistent with our beliefs and that we're in action and enacting those understandings and the wisdom that we've come to gain in our lives and not just, you know, living in a contradiction or taking actions that are contradictory with our understanding of right and wrong and then not, you know, seeing some of the things that we do in our life or some of the things that we support as being antithetical to our, you know, what we would say is the way that we are versus the way that we act. And so, nine-day holistic. I mean, we do it live, folks. We're not live, but we are getting the show note put down live you know we're doing it live but we're not live but we're not going to go and you know oh i better edit that part out or this is going to be superly really high produced again just because of the sort of the frequency and things like that that we're working on getting down here and the type of show that this is uh, again so we have to you know get to that more of the solutions and exposing the lies and getting into the bio war and showing you the documents you know And showing you the documents about how how they're... They
0: turn the friggin' frogs gay!
5: Okay, there's another clip I had loaded into the sound deck. (laughs) We're gonna show you all the documents. They turn the
0: friggin' frogs gay!
5: All right, we're gonna show you how they're doing that. No, we're gonna... They are. They're turning the friggin' frogs gay, man. They're, They're messing with the RNA in the frogs and turning them gay. No. It's the bisphenol A, though, right? That's what that was about. And it actually is like a hormone mimicker that messes with your hormones and you know, shown to reduce testosterone and cause uh, hormone issues in males and women and females and frogs, apparently, right? And so it was a big joke that he was saying that, but it was actually had quite a bit of truth to it, that particular meme that has gone, you know, I don't know, some of the younger generation might not even know what the frog's gay thing is, you know? So here, there you go. Here we are exposing the frogs and getting back to the the true wisdom that we're trying to pass down here on Freedom's Rising. But once we do come to understand solutions, we can enact that in our lives. We can become more consistent with our holistic self-assessment and take the time and sacrifice it takes to teach others and attempt to purvey that information down to the younger generations. Uh to sort of continue the lantern and keeping the fuel stocked and so that freedom's rising fire doesn't die, you know, it doesn't get extinguished. We don't just see it collapse and fall into this neo-techno-communist world that we'll be living in. Are living in now, you know, are presently, currently living in and watching our children very rapidly move towards deci- decisions they'll have to make in life that aren't comfortable at all for any of us to make. And the fear that I have with that legitimate fear, I think that's not just uh, false evidence appearing real, but actually a legitimate fear is that, you know, that we're going to lose that choice, that we're going to lose the options, that we're going to go so far with some of this stuff it's been happening and our reactions to it that we're going to overreact and take away freedoms and take away people's ability to live in freedom and under any form of you know like we've been talking about under the laws of nature and like things that sound so foreign to people now and it, it does because we're so far into the simulacrum we're so far into la la land we're so far away from reality at this point with the way that we've gone with things and into this relativistic worldview of, you know, might makes right and for the greater good and these concepts that have led us to where we're a very destructive and violent species to ourselves even and then to others through our behaviors, even if we live a relatively peaceful life, you know, and don't have any, you know, apparent violence in our lives. And that's sort of the dual-sided thing of it here in Freedoms Rising and and Falling Into the Movement Traps uh, series here is starting to uncover what we're going into is about the self-harm, you know, the harm that we do to ourselves, the self-violence, which could be argued as the largest form of violence that's on the planet that's not as visible as, like, the mass shootings and the wars and the mass death and the mega-death, right? The nuclear bomb threat and the, you know, the uh images we see of war and what that looks like are like i said the these psychopaths uh some of them probably trained operatives, others just totally you know minds blown out, chaotic, you know completely crazy individuals who go in and harm these children or these mass amounts of people with their actions uh in these shootings. That's not the only type of violence we have in the world, you know we also have. Uh, violence to the self, uh, and a self sort of, uh, a self violence that goes on that we don't even recognize as easily. We haven't been trained to see it as much. It becomes more of a normal thing that even we continue and we carry on. And so getting into the slide deck here on slide number 17 in the struggle for freedom into falling into the movement traps, uh, part four today, Here on Freedoms Rising, episode 20, we're going to open with a quote from Fromm, and this is from The Escape from Freedom, or The Fear of Freedom, depending on, you know, where you're looking, you might find it under either title, and it's from, from pages four and five of the book, so we'll be hearing this also later in the chapter one opening that we're going to close this episode out with. It says, These are the outstanding questions that arise when we look at the human aspect of freedom, the longing for submission, and the lust for power. What is freedom as a human experience? Is it the desire for freedom, something inherent in human nature? Is it an identical experience regardless of what kind of culture a person lives in? Or is it something different according to the degree of individualism reached in a particular society? Is freedom only the absence of external pressure, or it is also the presence of something, and if so, of what? What are the social and economic factors in society that make for striving for freedom? Can freedom become a burden, too heavy for man to bear, something he tries to escape from? Why, then, is that freedom is for many a cherished goal and for others a threat? Is there not also perhaps besides an innate desire for freedom, an instinctive wish for submission? If there is not, how can we account for the attraction which submission to a leader has for so many today? Is submission always to an overt authority, or is there also submission to internalized authorities, such as duty or conscience, to an inner compulsion or to anonymous authorities like public opinion? Very very profound there, that last part. Is submission always to an overt authority, or is there also submission to internalized authorities, such as duty or conscience, to inner compulsions, or to anonymous authorities like public opinion? Is there a hidden satisfaction in submitting, and what is its essence? What is its essence from... Again, escape from freedom, from, from, and, you know, what is the answer to these questions? These are why we're asking them and not because we've got it all figured out. We're exploring here the ideas that are being put out. Is there something to this? Is there really something going on where even if people put on the show and all the sayings and phrases and flags and placards and rallies and movements and t-shirts right is there really the inner striving and a real genuine pursuit of knowledge wisdom freedom truth or is a lot of that a show and there's some sort of deep down burden or issue still being dealt with that causes this person to really have some of this stuff like he was talking about, and inner compulsions to anonymous authority, so group mind, right, group thinking, uh the problem of you know conformity, and us being sort of wanting to please others and not get too far off you know off the path of where other people are at, not wanting to get outside of the norm of what the mainstream is thinking and doing, feeling, acting, you know, believing. The authorities that they're giving themselves up to. And if that makes sense, you know, we'll just continue on that behavior, right? And not want to rock the boat. Don't want to, you know, don't want to cause too much of a problem over here by holding a different opinion, you know, by having a little bit of a difference of way of looking at it. And these are the types of things that we'll be exploring here. And uh, we'll also be. You know, again, there'll be some Freud talked about with the chapter one at the end with Fromm, and then also Arnold Gruen here, also someone who's critiquing uh, some of the mainstream at that time psychology uh, provided by and discovered by Freud, who was obviously brilliant, um, but we can, you know, if there's holes in someone's work, maybe they would have refined it themselves if they were still around and able to do so. But on the, on a book from Arnold Gruen called The Insanity of Normality Towards Understanding of Human Destructiveness, he says, or it explains that the book is about, more or less. It says, according to Sigmund Freud, man is born with an innate tendency to destruction and violence. In The Insanity of Normality, the psychoanalysis Arnold Gruen challenges that assumption, arguing instead that a root of evil lies in self-hatred, a rage or... Originating in a self betrayal that begins in childhood, when autonomy is surrendered in exchange for, quote, love, unquote, or those who wield power over us. To share in that subjugating power, we create a false self, an image of ourselves that springs from a powerful and deep seated sense of fear. Gruen traces this pattern of adaption and smoldering rebellion through a number of case studies, sociological phenomena from Nazism to Reaganomics, and literary worlds. The insanity this attitude produces unfortunately goes wildly unrecognized precisely because it has become the, quote, realism, unquote, that modern society inculcates into its members. Gruen warns, however, that the escape from this pattern lies not simply in rebellion, for the rebel remains emotionally tied to the object of his rebellion, but in the development of Personal autonomy, his elegant and far-reaching conclusions is that while autonomy is not easily attained, its absence provides catastroph uh, uh, its absence proves catastrophic to both individual and society so being proposed the solution there of autonomy, and we're not just talking about you know and he was not just referring to physical autonomy like oh you're able to do all the things yourself and you're able to pay your own bills and you're able to you know make your own meal for yourself and wash your own clothes and you know you you can pay your bills on time and those things or have a business and operate it not just that but psychological autonomy you know individual autonomy uh in in the mind or your, your overall being and the way of your being is uh not dependent on the whim of the crowd. It's not dependent on the whim of a politician or some social media influencer figure that has to give you your your uh it your your motivation or your ability to move forward, you know, these types of things is not the autonomy that we're talking about, but they're not also excluded. I mean that it's also included to be able to do all those other things as well in your autonomy. you're definitely not going to be an autonomous person if you're not able to you know, do those forementioned things, aforementioned things like cleaning your clothes or taking care of your, you know, surroundings or your family even or your responsibilities, right? But more of a, again, you know, your personal journey and your personal thing that you're involved in will require you to discover and break down and break away from society in a lot of ways that are painful and somehow some way in some ways, and what we can see, I think in the world obviously are too hard for people to bear in a lot of cases. It's too difficult to do that and break through all those barriers so instead we we might even go that route a little bit and feign or sort of fun that we're about you know truth, freedom, justice, and really you know fail to recognize in a lot of cases our own inabilities to continue again because of this uh this uh pattern of the insanity of normality, as Arnold Gruen puts it. And here I have from an essay by Esther Bayar or Vailar on page nine of that essay from The Manipulated Man, it says, Freedom is the last thing that he wants. He functions, as we shall see, according to the principles of pleasure in non-freedom. To be sentenced to lifelong freedom is is a worse fate than lifelong slavery. To put it another way, man is always searching for someone or something to enslave him, for only as a slave does he feel secure. And that essay holds a very interesting view on how people really look at freedom and how how we've uh, sort of putting ourselves in our little... Safety c- cocoons in society are actually holding us in chains that we're enslaved, simply by the way we've been conditioned to think. Right? As another slide, and another book here that I would point to from Fromm that I couldn't recall earlier necessarily, but I ha- I knew it was in a slide is the Anatomy of Human Destructiveness. I believe somewhere around here I actually have the hard copy of this book, and. <clears throat> it's Fromm says in that book here, the sick individual finds, finds himself at home with other similarly sick individuals. The whole culture is geared to this kind of pathology. The result is that the average individual does not experience the separateness and isolation. The fully schizophrenic person feels he feels at ease among those who suffer from the same deformation. In fact, It is the fully sane person who feels isolated in the insane society. He may suffer so much from the incapacity to communicate that it is he who may become psychotic. So is this analysis accurate, you know? Do we see in our society signs and symptoms of what's being discussed here? Or do we see I think, from my perspective, it's the opposite. From my perspective, we see this, what Fromm is alluding to here, which is why, obviously, I've created the slide and put it here. But it's something I've even experienced, in a way. And I'm not saying that I'm the fully sane person discussed here. But it does start to feel that way, right? That you're in clown world sometimes. Sometimes we see this clown world in a much bigger way around us. And if we've sort of broken through some of the veils and some of the curtains, some of the lies, some of the deceit and the corruption, that can be... That's when people are, are in that state of what they call waking up, right? What they say is like, I'm, I'm waking up or I woke up around this time, around this year because I started to understand these things. A lot of people with the with the pandemic, right? I, I woke up to this because of the way... I could see my coworkers behaving. It wasn't some documentary. It wasn't like a uh, a podcast. It wasn't a person. It was actually like reality that was causing them to wake up because they started to see it, right? And then once you start to see it, you kind of can't see stop seeing it. And then it's everywhere all of a sudden. And so the insanity, right? When you start to see some of the insanity live time and how human beings in reactive states and in fear can do a lot of things that don't make sense, (laughs) you know, and be told and led to do things that don't make a lot of sense. And I think, again, I think people felt like during that time, that's when they say, oh, well, I'm waking up to all this, right? When that could just be the initial stages of sort of, you know, a beginning to not to heal, a beginning of healing, a very beginning and it may not uh be the full awakening up thing that you're talking about i mean there's some i think people tend to use that phrase again like just throwing it out there like the open-mindedness or other things like that and i'm just looking ahead a little bit into the slides i know you know i've tried to keep these episodes somewhere between 30 minutes to two hours <laughs> And I'm just looking at how much time with the chapter and the closing out and how many slides. I didn't feel like we covered a lot of them today. So I'll read this slide and then we'll check back in with that. Because I also want to cover a little bit of foreshadow into the struggle for freedom. Or sorry, uh, escape from freedom from the InfoGalactic article that I want to read. And then we'll play that and then we'll close out this episode today. So this is from... uh, a chapter, The False Self, from Glenn Partner, The Machine in Our Heads. Another essay, or a section, The False Self. and Some of the links I'll build out to this as I put this show on the website, so you'll, you'll have links to these works. It says, We have internalized our masters, which is a well-known psychological response to trauma. When faced with overwhelming terror, the human mind splits, with a spark of itself modeling itself after the oppressor. This is an act of appeasement. Quote, look, unquote, the mind says, in effect, quote, I'm like you, so do not harm me, unquote. As a result, the civilizing process together with this psychological defense mechanism known as, quote, identification with the aggressor, unquote, we now hear the alien voices of the various representatives of civilization in our head, because of these alien ego identifications, we no longer hear our own tribal primal voice. And again, this aligns with the, what we've been talking about today, and this uh, self oppression, you know, the self and and groupthink, you know, the worrying about what the civilization and going outside of the norm, right? And then also this mind splitting, you know, from the trauma and the terror. If we're so even terrified, as we were talking about last time, of our worldview shattering, of this new information shattering our worldview, and that is the terror that we're having, is this can't be true because everything I believe would then be problematic, and I'd have to rebuild from new. I'd have to tear down this self that I believe that everything is true about my reality, and that my experts, and my scientism, and my political party, and my group, and my news, and my belief systems about how the world operates, and wanting to just discount other things as conspiracies, and, you know, it couldn't have been the JFK thing, or it couldn't have been the 9-11 thing, or even those types of... uh, actual like events in time, which are really just sort of like the fruit coming out of the tree or whatever. Those are the shiny things that you can see, but there's a root system below all that. There's, there's, you know, the buildup of technocracy and the thoughts and ideas surrounding cybernetics that evolve over time. They're not just events in time that occur, but those events can be used it, for these psychological components that are understood. Well, well, well well understood by the types of folks that deploy the psychological operations on humanity, which is what, you know, COVID was. That's why we call it the bio psy war, because it's in reality, it is happening, but it's also psychological operation. That's why we covered, you know, the basics of military psychological operations and things like, you know, uh, Operation Sea Spray and simple little examples showing that, there is you know, a physical manipulation of our environments being done by the military industrial complex you could call it that isn't taking our safety necessarily into consideration. And again, this is one of those, well, that can't be true or my whole worldview paradigm about science would be incorrect. and how can we not believe Anthony Fauci and oh my God, you're telling me that this they're all in on it, you know, everyone would have to be in on it. No, you are not understanding how human construction of hierarchical processes and compartmentalization work. You have you have been acting as a child and ignoring information and not looking into things and not doing the research and throwing people out like conspiracy theorists and calling them crazy and just ignoring anything they've said to you over the years. And like a little child holding their finger in their ears, running away from the truth and freedom, again because it's linked together, morality, objective truth, and the difference between right and wrong behavior, and judge, judging that, finding the causes for it, and then refuting to go along with that which was incorrect and that which is wrong, and and then choosing to not do certain behaviors. That would be the solution, right? But we're running a thousand miles an hour away from that. And that's what we're covering here in, you know, falling into the movement traps to open up to show why that people would be so apt and able to fall into the pitfalls of the movement traps, right? We've got to understand some of this groundwork that we're laying at laying down here because people are like probably at this point at part four, <laughs> into this, like, when are you going to talk about the movements that you talked about and discussed? Well, we are, we're getting to that. We're, we're talking about why movements come about. We're talking about why people veil the thing in a movement, right? That they veil the true authentic self that they can be deploying and working on and valuing and holding up and you know, utilizing that creative essence of themselves to do something meaningful in their lives and running away from that a hundred miles an hour to find the group to find the label to find the revolution to find the government to overthrow to define their life around that thing that they're fighting that's the authoritarian figure that they're gonna create labels around and have every little movement and we're going we're gonna to rebel against big mommy, daddy, you know, by basically using all their systems against them and not have a spiritual revolution and not do the real revolution that is really going to fix the problem, which is the one that starts within, you know, and that is worked on within. And then from there, we can start to maybe solve some of these other problems. But that's why we're spending time doing this. And I think with that slide, uh, we will see here. About continuing on next week with the slide deck, we got to slide number 21 today. So with some of the other clips and announcements and then the outro that I have planned for today uh, without keeping it too long, which shouldn't be a big issue, but uh, for me, you know, we're not going to do 15 our episodes. We are gonna put this information and trickle it out slowly over time so we can refine, so we can spend the time. So it feels like the journey, you know, we're going down and along it and not just trying to speed through the information or speed to the end. There's no rush, I write, right? I don't I don't see a rush here. I think if the content is valued and you've found uh, some good information here and you'd like to continue down then please continue on listening to Freedom's Rising and As we continue to get ready to prepare more war episodes, we'll talk about that. And those will most likely just be individual episodes, not necessarily in a regular schedule. uh, As those are bigger pieces, require more sourcing, require more reading. Uh, We have to show the documents. We have to, you know, uncover from the front lines what's happening in the war. And a lot's happened. A lot's happened in the last year that i haven't been able to cover that i've wanted to uh life events happening and other things going on in my life took me away from producing the bio war for a time but we're definitely as i've been saying still in it and the fact that we're being told you know that these other things are going on it's not that you know the overturning of roe versus weight isn't important or it's not that uh looking at what's going on in ukraine with russia and things like that is not important but it's interesting that, you know, now that they've got all the apps installed and the corporation's still, you know, enforcing the COVID narratives and still there's the testing and track tracing and databasing, which is really what it was all about is implementing technocracy and getting you to inject the things and start to go along with, you know, how they're going to roll out the, you know, next, again, what well, we've been talking about, the techno communism that's being rolled out and the world economic forums agendas and this new um you know new world order basically right that everyone's been warning you about that everyone's been talking about but again we we tend to discount that as just all oh, a bunch of crazy conspiracy theorists and no this is what's been written about this is what alan watt if you go listen to alan watt and his cutting through the matrix.com for decades putting out this work Uh, just warning of the same thing basically technocracy and uh, you know going over the key players and key information that someone would need to know to understand that and that's all he pounds on just pounds on it over and over and you know maybe 12 years ago you'd be like oh you know that that's not happening that's not going to happen and then you look now and he he exited the matrix so to say he's moved on but he was dead on with all his analysis And people won't take the time to go listen to something like that, because it's sort of like me. It's a little bit more monotone. It's not as exciting. There's not a lot of huge production sounds and effects and things happening. Although we do have our soundboard here, you know. And we do know that, like uh, Cuomo was saying there, that basically what's going on here, the reality of the situation is that...
0: Everything we're doing is basically voluntary on
5: behalf of people, right? Right right because it is it's uh you know we are giving them this power and people will say it's not voluntary it's done through coercion and no it's it's through what we've been talking about here there's a psychological component of identifying with our oppressor to get our goods to get our medals to get our awards to get our flattering titles right To participate in this system and people are going to go right along with that voluntarily into this and that's what's the most terrifying part you know in the secondary matrix watching it all go down is you just see us walking right into the to the slave house i was gonna you know it's not a slaughterhouse it's a it's a nightmarish you know uh new scientific new technologies being deployed Uh, Making chimeric human being uh, environments with, you know, virtual realities and metaspaces and places that, unless you're going to go along with it all, along with all the agendas, you know, they're going to not have you be a part of that. You won't be going forward into the future of humanity, essentially. We're going to cut out the people that we don't want around anymore, which which is part of the operation and agenda that's been going on a long time. And we'll we'll be in control completely of all breeding of all breathing of all eating of all everything consumption and your carbon footprints and your all this has always been about some psychopathic, completely corrupt and evil satanic agenda to control humanity, right? And so, yeah, we're gonna take the time to spend to understand more about when people want the solutions and the solutions. You know, this is the solution to understand the problem, right? And see, check, then check yourself and make sure that you got freedom really rising in your mind, right? And so stay tuned for the rest of the episodes of this week. Uh, we'll do our best to hit the mark and get out the episodes that we have planned to go through this July 4th Independence Day uh week because we celebrate freedom and put forward effort to promote freedom all the time here and not just one day a year or certain times of year here at the freedoms rising studios where you can find us at freedomsrising.live and tylerbloyer.com that's your host here that's me tyler bloyer you can find my uh, podcast feeds and all the different various outlets and platforms that we're at there And uh, you'll also find us back here tomorrow doing another episode of Freedoms Rising. Again, what we're going to be exiting with here is Eric Fromm's book, Escape from Freedom, the opening chapter. And I know it sounds like I'm doing the outro right at this minute, but I was going to cover, as I just recalled, a little bit of the InfoGalactic. InfoGalactic is the alternative I use to Wikipedia because I really can't stand Wikipedia. And I don't trust Wikipedia. But it says, Escape from Freedom, known as the fear of freedom outside North America, is a book by Frankfurt-born psychoanalyst Eric Fromm, first published in the United States by Holt, Reinhardt, and Winston, Inc. in 1941. In the book, Fromm explores humanity's shifting relationship between freedom with particular regard to the personal consequences of its absence. His special emphasis as a psychosocial condition's is the psychosocial conditions that facilitated the rise of Nazism. And the summary we'll read here. Fromm distinguishes between freedom from, or negative freedom, and freedom to, or positive freedom. The former refers to emancipation from restrictions such as social conventions placed on individuals by other people or institutions. This is kind of freedom typified by the existentialism of satire, and has often been fought for historically, but according to Fromm, on its own, can be a destructive force unless accompanied by a creative element. Freedom, too, to use the use of freedom, to employ spontaneously the total integrated personality in creative acts. This, he argues, necessarily implies a true connectedness with others that goes beyond the superficial bonds of conventional social intercourse. In the spontaneous realization of the self, man unites himself anew with the world. In the process of becoming freed, still reading here from the Infogalactic summary from Escape from Freedom, and then we'll start into the chapter here. In the process of becoming freed from authority, we are often left with feelings of hopelessness. He likens this process to the individuation of infants in the normal course of child development that will not abate until we use our freedom to and develop some form of replacement of the old order. However, a common substitute for exercising freedom to, or authenticity is to submit to an authoritarian system that replaces the old order with another or different external appearance but identical functions of the individual to eliminate uncertainty by prescribing what to think and how to act he characterizes this as a dialectic a dialectic historical process whereby the original situation is the thesis, and the emancipation from is the antithesis. This synthesis is only reached when something has replaced the original order and provided humans with a new security. Fromm does not indicate that the new system will necessarily be an improvement. In fact, Fromm indicates that this will only break the never-ending cycle of negative freedom that society submits to. So again, are we really seeking freedom? Are we really in an effort to promote and grow and treat freedom as the precious goal or is that fire in the minds of men to overthrow their previous, you know, internal dictatorship, external dictatorship, uh their ty- ty- tyrannical, corrupt master, whether that be, you know, a monarchy or a government? And then just make the object of your life the dialectic, as he's putting here, the opposite of that. And being in that sort of childish opposition to the big daddy, big mommy, parental figure versus, you know, other chapters of life that come after that first awakening, as we were talking about, or that rebellion aspect of our human nature, right? What are the aspects and chapters of life after that? to continue implementing the solutions because it's not that that phase is like wrong or it's incorrect but it should be a phase towards a journey right on on the journey towards the rise of freedom so we'll get into it we'll let Fromm speak for himself in the book here and then uh, see you back here tomorrow thanks everyone and we'll talk to you soon chapter
2: one freedom a psychological problem Modern European and American history is centered around the effort to gain freedom from the political, economic, and spiritual shackles that have bound man. The battles for freedom were fought by the oppressed, those who wanted new liberties, against those who had privileges to defend. While a class was fighting for its own liberation from domination, it believed itself to be fighting for human freedom as such, and thus was able to appeal to an ideal— to the longing for freedom rooted in all who are oppressed. In the long and virtually continuous battle for freedom, however, classes that were fighting against oppression at one stage sided with the enemies of freedom when victory was won and new privileges were to be defended. Despite many reverses, freedom has won battles. Many died in those battles in the conviction that to die in the struggle against oppression— was better to live without freedom. Such a death was the utmost assertion of their individuality. History seemed to be proving that it was possible for man to govern himself, to make decisions for himself, and to think and feel as he saw fit. The full expression of man's potentialities seemed to be the goal toward which social development was rapidly approaching. The principles of economic liberalism Political democracy, religious autonomy, and individualism in personal life gave expression to the longing for freedom, and at the same time seemed to bring mankind nearer to its realization. One tie after another was severed. Man had overthrown the domination of nature and made himself her master. He had overthrown the domination of the church and the domination of the absolutist state. The abolition of external domination seemed to be not only a necessary but also a sufficient condition to attain the cherished goal—freedom of the individual. The First World War was regarded by many as the final struggle and its conclusion to the ultimate victory for freedom. Existing democracies appeared strengthened, and new ones replaced old monarchies. But only a few years elapsed before new systems emerged, which denied everything that men believed they had won in centuries of struggle. For the essence of these new systems, which effectively took command of man's entire social and personal life, was the submission of all but a handful of men to an authority over which they had no control. At first many found comfort in the thought that the victory of the authoritarian system was due to the madness of a few individuals, and that their madness would lead to their downfall in due time. Others smugly believed that the Italian people, or the Germans, were lacking in a sufficiently long period of training in democracy, and that therefore one could wait complacently until they had reached the political maturity of the Western democracies. Another common illusion, perhaps the most dangerous of all, was that men like Hitler had gained power over the vast apparatus of the state through nothing but cunning and trickery, that they and their satellites ruled merely by sheer force, that the whole population was only the willless object of betrayal and terror. In the years that have elapsed since, the fallacy of these arguments has become apparent we have been compelled to recognize that millions in Germany were as eager to surrender their freedom as their fathers were to fight for it, that instead of wanting freedom, they sought for ways of escape from it, that other millions were indifferent and did not believe the defense of freedom to be worth fighting and dying for. We also recognize that the crisis of democracy is not a peculiarly Italian or German problem, but one confronting every modern state. Nor does it matter which symbols the enemies of human freedom choose. Freedom is not less endangered if attacked in the name of anti-fascism than in that of outright fascism. This truth has been so forcefully formulated by John Dewey that I express the thought in his words. The serious threat to our democracy, he says, is not the existence of foreign totalitarian states. It is the existence within our own personal attitudes and within our own institutions of conditions which have given a victory to external authority, discipline, uniformity, and dependence upon the leader in foreign countries. The battlefield is also accordingly here, within ourselves and our institutions. If we want to fight fascism, We must understand it. Wishful thinking will not help us. And reciting optimistic formulae will prove to be as inadequate and useless as the ritual of an Indian rain dance. In addition to the problem of the economic and social conditions which have given rise to fascism, there is a human problem which needs to be understood. It is the purpose of this book to analyze those dynamic factors in the character structure of modern man which made him want to give up freedom in fascist countries and which so widely prevail in millions of our own people. These are the outstanding questions that arise when we look at the human aspect of freedom, the longing for submission and the lust for power. What is freedom as a human experience? Is the desire for freedom something inherent in human nature? Is it an identical experience regardless of what kind of culture a person lives in? Or is it something different according to the degree of individualism reached in a particular society? Is freedom only the absence of external pressure? Or is it also the presence of something? And if so, of what? What are the social and economic factors in society that make for the striving for freedom? Can freedom become a burden? too heavy for man to bear, something he tries to escape from? Why, then, is it that freedom is, for many, a cherished goal, and for others, a threat? Is there not also, perhaps, besides an innate desire for freedom, an instinctive wish for submission? If there is not, how can we account for the attraction which submission to a leader has for so many today? Is submission always to an overt authority, or is there also submission to internalized authorities, such as duty or conscience, to inner compulsions, or to anonymous authorities like public opinion? Is there a hidden satisfaction in submitting, and what is its essence? What is it that creates in men an insatiable lust for power? Is it the strength of their vital energy, or is it a fundamental weakness and inability to experience life spontaneously and lovingly. What are the psychological conditions that make for the strength of these strivings? What are the social conditions upon which such psychological conditions in turn are based? Analysis of the human aspect of freedom and of authoritarianism forces us to consider a general problem, namely, that of the role which psychological factors play as active forces in the social process, and this eventually leads to the problem of the interaction of psychological, economic, and ideological factors in the social process. Any attempt to understand the attraction which fascism exercises upon great nations compels us to recognize the role of psychological factors, for we are dealing here with a political system which, essentially, does not appeal to rational forces of self-interest, but which arouses and mobilizes diabolical forces in man which we had believed to be non-existent, or at least to have died out long ago. The familiar picture of man in the last centuries was one of a rational being whose actions were determined by his self-interest and the ability to act according to it. Even writers like Hobbes who recognized lust for power and hostility as driving forces in man, explained the existence of these forces as a logical result of self-interest. Since men are equal, and thus have the same wish for happiness, and since there is not enough wealth to satisfy them all to the same extent, they necessarily fight against each other and want power to secure the future enjoyment of what they have at present. But Hobbes's picture became outmoded. The more the middle class succeeded in breaking down the power of the former political or religious rulers, the more men succeeded in mastering nature, and the more millions of individuals became economically independent, the more did one come to believe in a rational world and in man as an essentially rational being. The dark and diabolical forces of man's nature were relegated to the Middle Ages And to still earlier periods of history. And they were explained by lack of knowledge or by the cunning schemes of deceitful kings and priests. One looked back upon these periods as one might at a volcano which for a long time has ceased to be a menace. One felt secure and confident that the achievements of modern democracy had wiped out all sinister forces. The world looked bright and safe like the well-lit streets of a modern city. Wars were supposed to be the last relics of older times, and one needed just one more war to end war. Economic crises were supposed to be accidents, even though these accidents continued to happen with a certain regularity. When fascism came into power, most people were unprepared, both theoretically and practically. They were unable to believe that man could exhibit such propensities for evil. Such lust for power, such disregard for the rights of the weak, or such yearning for submission. Only a few had been aware of the rumbling of the volcano preceding the outbreak. Nietzsche had disturbed the complacent optimism of the nineteenth century, so had Marx in a different way. Another warning had come somewhat later from Freud. To be sure, He and most of his disciples had only a very naive notion of what goes on in society, and most of his applications of psychology to social problems were misleading constructions. Yet, by devoting his interest to the phenomena of individual emotional and mental disturbances, he led us to the top of the volcano and made us look into the boiling crater. Freud went further than anybody before him in directing attention to the observation and analysis of the irrational and unconscious forces which determine parts of human behavior. He and his followers in modern psychology not only uncovered the irrational and unconscious sector of man's nature, the existence of which had been neglected by modern rationalism, he also showed that these irrational phenomena followed certain laws and therefore could be understood rationally. He taught us to understand the language of dreams and somatic symptoms, as well as the irrationalities in human behavior. He discovered that these irrationalities, as well as the whole character structure of an individual, were reactions to the influences exercised by the outside world, and particularly by those occurring in early childhood. But Freud was so imbued with the spirit of his culture that, that he could not go beyond certain limits which were set by it. These very limits became limitations for his understanding even of the sick individual. They handicapped his understanding of the normal individual and of the irrational phenomena operating in social life. Since this book stresses the role of psychological factors in the whole of the social process, and since this analysis is based on some of the fundamental discoveries of Freud, particularly those concerning the operation of unconscious forces in man's character and their dependence on external influences, I think it will be helpful to the reader to know from the outset some of the general principles of our approach, and also the main differences between this approach and the classical Freudian concepts. Freud accepted the traditional belief in a basic dichotomy between man and society— as well as the traditional doctrine of the evilness of human nature. Man, to him, is fundamentally antisocial. Society must domesticate him, must allow some direct satisfaction of biological, and hence ineradicable, drives. But for the most part society must refine and adroitly check man's basic impulses. In consequence of this suppression of natural impulses by society, Something miraculous happens. The suppressed drives turn into strivings that are culturally valuable and thus become the human basis for culture. Freud chose the word sublimation for this strange transformation from suppression into civilized behavior. If the amount of suppression is greater than the capacity for sublimation, individuals become neurotic and it is necessary to allow the lessening of suppression. Generally, however, there is a reverse relation between satisfaction of man's drives and culture. The more suppression, the more culture, and the more danger of neurotic disturbances. The relation of the individual to society in Freud's theory is essentially a static one. The individual remains virtually the same and becomes changed only insofar as society exercises greater pressure on his natural drives and thus enforces more sublimation, or allows more satisfaction, and thus sacrifices culture. Like the so-called basic instincts of man, which earlier psychologists accepted, Freud's conception of human nature was essentially a reflection of the most important drives to be seen in modern man. For Freud, the individual of his culture represented man, and those passions and anxieties that are characteristic for man in modern society were looked upon as external forces, rooted in the biological constitution of man. While we could give many illustrations of this point, as, for instance, the social basis for the hostility prevalent today in modern man, the Oedipus complex, the so-called castration complex in women, I want only to give one more illustration which is particularly important— because it concerns the whole concept of man as a social being. Freud always considers the individual in his relations to others. These relations, as Freud sees them, however, are similar to the economic relations to others which are characteristic of the individual in capitalist society. Each person works for himself, individualistically, at his own risk, and not primarily in cooperation with others. But he is not a Robinson Crusoe. He needs others, as customers, as employees, or as employers. He must buy and sell, give and take. The market, whether it is the commodity or the labor market, regulates these relations. Thus the individual, primarily alone and self-sufficient, enters into economic relations with others as means to one end. To sell and to buy. Freud's concept of human relations is essentially the same. The individual appears fully equipped with biologically given drives, which need to be satisfied. In order to satisfy them, the individual enters into relations with other objects. Other individuals, thus, are always a means to one's end, the satisfaction of strivings, which in themselves originate in the individual before he enters into contact with others. The field of human relations in Freud's sense is similar to the market. It is an exchange of satisfaction of biologically given needs, in which the relationship to the other individual is always a means to an end, but never an end in itself. Contrary to Freud's viewpoint, the analysis offered in this book is based on the assumption that the key problem of psychology is that of the specific kind of relatedness of the individual towards the world, and not that of the satisfaction or frustration of this or that instinctual need per se. Furthermore, on the assumption that the relationship between man and society is not a static one, it is not as if we had on the one hand an individual equipped by nature with certain drives, and on the other, society as something apart from him, either satisfying or frustrating these innate propensities. Although there are certain needs— such as hunger, thirst, sex, which are common to man, those drives which make for the differences in men's characters, like love and hatred, the lust for power and the yearning for submission, the enjoyment of sensuous pleasure and the fear of it, are all products of the social process. The most beautiful as well as the most ugly inclinations of man are not part of a fixed and biologically given human nature. But result from the social process which creates man. In other words, society has not only a suppressing function, although it has that too, but it has also a creative function. Man's nature, his passions, and anxieties are a cultural product. As a matter of fact, man himself is the most important creation and achievement of the continuous human effort, the record of which we call history. It is the very task of social psychology to understand this process of man's creation in history. Why do certain definite changes of man's character take place from one historical epoch to another? Why is the spirit of the Renaissance different from that of the Middle Ages? Why is the character structure of man in monopolistic capitalism different from that in the nineteenth century? Social psychology has to explain why new abilities and new passions bad or good, come into existence. Thus we find, for instance, that from the Renaissance up until our day men have been filled with a burning ambition for fame, while this striving, which today seems so natural, was little present in man of the medieval society. In the same period men developed a sense for the beauty of nature, which they did not possess before. Again, in the northern European countries, from the sixteenth century on, man developed an obsessional craving to work which had been lacking in a free man before that period. But man is not only made by history, history is made by man. The solution of this seeming contradiction constitutes the field of social psychology. Its task is to show not only how passions, desires, anxieties change and develop as a result of the social process— but also how man's energies, thus shaped into specific forms, in their turn become productive forces, molding the social process. Thus, for instance, the craving for fame and success and the drive to work are forces without which modern capitalism could not have developed. Without these and a number of other human forces, man would have lacked the impetus to act according to the social and economic requirements of the modern commercial and industrial system. It follows from what we have said that the viewpoint presented in this book differs from Freud's inasmuch as it emphatically disagrees with his interpretation of history as the result of psychological forces that in themselves are not socially conditioned. It disagrees as emphatically with those theories which neglect the role of the human factor as one of the dynamic elements in the social process. This criticism is directed not only against sociological theories which explicitly wish to eliminate psychological problems from sociology, like those of Durkheim and his school, but also against those theories that are more or less tinged with behavioristic psychology. Common to all these theories is the assumption that human nature has no dynamism of its own, and that psychological changes are to be understood in terms of the development of new habits as an adaptation to new cultural patterns. These theories, though speaking of the psychological factor, at the same time reduce it to a shadow of cultural patterns. Only a dynamic psychology, the foundations of which have been laid by Freud, can get further than paying lip service to the human factor. Though there is no fixed human nature, we cannot regard human nature as being infinitely malleable, and able to adapt itself to any kind of conditions without developing a psychological dynamism of its own. Human nature, though being the product of historical evolution, has certain inherent mechanisms and laws to discover which is the task of psychology. At this point it seems necessary for the full understanding of what has been said so far, and also of what follows, to discuss the notion of adaptation this discussion offers at the same time an illustration of what we mean by psychological mechanisms and laws. It seems useful to differentiate between static and dynamic adaptation. By static adaptation, we mean such an adaptation to patterns as leaves the whole character structure unchanged and implies only the adoption of a new habit. An example of this kind of adaptation is the change from the Chinese habit of eating to the Western habit of using fork and knife. A Chinese coming to America will adapt himself to this new pattern, but this adaptation in itself has little effect on his personality. It does not arouse new drives or character traits. By dynamic adaptation, we refer to the kind of adaptation that occurs, for example, when a boy submits to the commands of his strict and threatening father, being too much afraid of him to do otherwise, and becomes a good boy. While he adapts himself to the necessities of the situation, something happens in him. He may develop an intense hostility against his father, which he represses, since it would be too dangerous to express it or even to be aware of it. This repressed hostility, however, though not manifest, is a dynamic factor in his character structure. It may create new anxiety and thus lead to still deeper submission. It may set up a vague defiance, directed against no one in particular but rather toward life in general. While here too, as in the first case, an individual adapts himself to certain external circumstances, this kind of adaptation creates something new in him, arouses new drives and new anxieties. Every neurosis is an example of this dynamic adaptation. It is essentially an adaptation to such external conditions, particularly those of early childhood, as are in themselves irrational and, generally speaking, unfavorable to the growth and development of the child. Similarly, such socio-psychological phenomena as are comparable to neurotic phenomena, why they should not be called neurotic will be discussed later like the presence of strong destructive or sadistic impulses in social groups, offer an example of dynamic adaptation to social conditions that are irrational and harmful to the development of men. Besides the question of what kind of adaptation occurs, other questions need to be answered. What is it that forces man to adapt himself to almost any conceivable condition of life, and what are the limits of his adaptability? In answering these questions, the first phenomenon we have to discuss is the fact that there are certain sectors in man's nature that are more flexible and adaptable than others. Those strivings and character traits by which men differ from each other show a great amount of elasticity and malleability. Love, destructiveness, sadism, the tendency to submit, the lust for power, detachment, the desire for self-aggrandizement, The passion for thrift, the enjoyment of sensual pleasure, and the fear of sensuality. These and many other strivings and fears to be found in man develop as a reaction to certain life conditions. They are not particularly flexible, for once they have become part of a person's character, they do not easily disappear or change into some other drive. But they are flexible in the sense that individuals, particularly in their childhood, Develop the one or other need according to the whole mode of life they find themselves in. None of these needs is fixed and rigid as if it were an innate part of human nature which develops and has to be satisfied under all circumstances. In contrast to those needs, there are others which are an indispensable part of human nature and imperatively need satisfaction, namely those needs that are rooted in the psychological organization of man like hunger, thirst, the need for sleep, and so on. For each of those needs, there exists a certain threshold beyond which lack of satisfaction is unbearable, and when this threshold is transcended, the tendency to satisfy the need assumes the quality of an all-powerful striving. All these physiologically conditioned needs can be summarized in the notion of a need for self-preservation. This need for self-preservation is that part of human nature which needs satisfaction under all circumstances, and therefore forms the primary motive of human behavior. To put this in a simple formula, man must eat, drink, sleep, protect himself against enemies, and so forth. In order to do all this, he must work and produce. Work, however, is nothing general or abstract. Work is always concrete work, that is, a specific kind of work in a specific kind of economic system. A person may work as a slave in a feudal system, as a peasant in an Indian pueblo, as an independent businessman in a capitalistic society, as a salesgirl in a modern department store, as a worker on the endless belt of a big factory these different kinds of work require entirely different personality traits and make for different kinds of relatedness to others. When man is born, the stage is set for him. He has to eat and drink, and therefore he has to work. And this means he has to work under the particular conditions and in the ways that are determined for him by the kind of society into which he is born. Both factors— His need to live and the social system, in principle, are unalterable by him as an individual, and they are the factors which determine the development of those other traits that show greater plasticity. Thus the mode of life, as it is determined for the individual by the peculiarity of an economic system, becomes the primary factor in determining his whole character structure, because the imperative need for self-preservation forces him to accept the conditions under which he has to live. This does not mean that he cannot try, together with others, to effect certain economic and political changes, but primarily his personality is molded by the particular mode of life, as he has already been confronted with it as a child through the medium of the family, which represents all the features that are typical of a particular society or class. The psychologically conditioned needs are not the only imperative part of man's nature. There is another part just as compelling, one which is not rooted in bodily processes, but in the very essence of the human mode and practice of life. The need to be related to the world outside oneself, the need to avoid aloneness. To feel completely alone and isolated leads to mental disintegration, just as physical starvation leads to death. This relatedness to others is not identical with physical contact. An individual may be alone in a physical sense for many years, and yet he may be related to ideas, values, or at least social patterns that give him a feeling of communion and belonging. On the other hand, he may live among people and yet be overcome with an utter feeling of isolation, the outcome of which, if it transcends a certain limit, is the state of insanity which schizophrenic disturbances represent. This lack of relatedness to values, symbols, patterns, we may call moral aloneness and state that moral aloneness is as intolerable as the physical aloneness, or rather that physical aloneness becomes unbearable only if it implies also moral aloneness. The spiritual relatedness to the world can assume many forms the monk in his cell who believes in God, and the political prisoner kept in isolation who feels one with his fellow fighters, are not alone morally. Neither is the English gentleman who wears his dinner jacket in the most exotic surroundings, nor the petty bourgeois who, though being deeply isolated from his fellow men, feels one with his nation or its symbols. The kind of relatedness to the world may be noble or trivial, but even being related to the basest kind of pattern is immensely preferable to being alone. Religion and nationalism, as well as any custom and any belief, however absurd and degrading, if it only connects the individual with others, are refuges from what man most dreads—isolation. The compelling need to avoid moral isolation has been described most forcefully by Balzac, in this passage from The Inventor's Suffering. But learn one thing. Impress it upon your mind, which is still so malleable. Man has a horror for aloneness. And of all kinds of aloneness, moral aloneness is the most terrible. The first hermits lived with God. They inhabited the world which is most populated, the world of the spirits. The first thought of man be he a leper or a prisoner, a sinner or an invalid, is to have a companion of his fate. In order to satisfy this drive, which is life itself, he applies all his strength, all his power, the energy of his whole life. Would Satan have found companions without this overpowering craving? On this theme one could write a whole epic— which would be the prologue to Paradise Lost, because Paradise Lost is nothing but the apology of rebellion. Any attempt to answer the question why the fear of isolation is so powerful in man would lead us far away from the main road we are following in this book. However, in order not to give the reader the impression that the need to feel one with others has some mysterious quality— I should like to indicate in what direction I think the answer lies. One important element is the fact that men cannot live without some sort of cooperation with others. In any conceivable kind of culture, man needs to cooperate with others if he wants to survive, whether for the purpose of defending himself against enemies or dangers of nature, or in order that he may be able to work and produce. Even Robinson Crusoe was accompanied by his man Friday. Without him, he would probably not only have become insane, but would actually have died. Each person experiences this need for the help of others very drastically as a child. On account of the factual inability of the human child to take care of itself with regard to all important functions, communication with others is a matter of life and death for the child. The possibility of being left alone is necessarily the most serious threat to the child's whole existence. There is another element, however, which makes the need to belong so compelling. The fact of subjective self-consciousness, of the faculty of thinking by which man is aware of himself as an individual entity, different from nature and other people. Although the degree of this awareness varies, as will be pointed out in the next chapter, its existence confronts man with a problem which is essentially human by being aware of himself as distinct from nature and other people, by being aware, even very dimly, of death, sickness, aging, he necessarily feels his insignificance and smallness in comparison with the universe and all others who are not he. Unless he belonged somewhere, unless his life had some meaning and direction, he would feel like a particle of dust and be overcome by his individual insignificance. He would not be able to relate himself to any system which would give meaning and direction to his life. He would be filled with doubt, and this doubt eventually would paralyze his ability to act, that is, to live. Before we proceed, it may be helpful to sum up what has been pointed out with regard to our general approach to the problems of social psychology. Human nature is neither a biologically fixed and innate sum total of drives— nor is it a lifeless shadow of cultural patterns to which it adapts itself smoothly. It is the product of human evolution, but it also has certain inherent mechanisms and laws. There are certain factors in man's nature which are fixed and unchangeable. The necessity to satisfy the psychologically conditioned drives, and the necessity to avoid isolation and moral aloneness. We have seen that the individual has to accept the mode of life rooted in the system of production and distribution, peculiar for any given society. In the process of dynamic adaptation to culture, a number of powerful drives develop which motivate the actions and feelings of the individual. The individual may or may not be conscious of these drives, but in any case they are forceful and demand satisfaction once they have developed they become powerful forces, which in their turn become effective in molding the social process. How economic, psychological, and ideological factors interact, and what further general conclusion concerning this interaction one can make, will be discussed later in the course of our analysis of the Reformation and of fascism. This discussion will always be centered around the main theme of this book. That man— the more he gains freedom in the sense of emerging from the original oneness with man and nature, and the more he becomes an individual, has no choice but to unite himself with the world in the spontaneity of love and productive work, or else to seek a kind of security by such ties with the world as destroy his freedom and the integrity of his individual self.